Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We're in this series now going through our eight statements of faith as Crossview Church. In the last two weeks and this week, we've been on the hot button topic, statement of faith, number six. And so two weeks ago, we talked about being pro-life and how being pro-life here at Crossview, it's so important to us that we're not just pro-life about unborn babies, amen? We are pro-life about unborn babies and we love unborn babies. But there, if we're going to be truly pro-life in the name of Jesus Christ, that means we've got to be pro-life for all human beings. That includes the ones who disagree with us, and that includes vulnerable, vulnerable women and moms and all those situations. Our goal as a church is not just to change laws, although we want that too, but our goal as a church is to create a society and a community where people wouldn't want to put their babies to death. Amen? And then last week, we talked about medical assistance in dying. And, uh, and again, we looked at, we are a pro-life. As Christians, we just believe in the sacredness of life. But again, how can we take the love of Jesus into our community, and how can we be the kind of church where people don't want to, where we can love people to such a level that people don't want to end their lives or ask a doctor to end their life early? All very important. Well, today, we get into the hottest of the hot-button topics. And you've just been waiting for this knowing it was there in the statement of faith. So let me read it. Let's read statement six again, and then you'll see which one it is, and you'll know immediately. But it says this, God created, this is our Crossview statement of faith, God created the human race, both male and female, in his own image. We believe, therefore, in the sanctity of all human life, again, all, from conception to natural death, and that marriage is intended by God to be between one man and one woman. So there's our cross-view statement of faith. And yes, we hold to the historic Christian understanding that marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. But let me tell you something else. The rest of this sermon is going to be very unlike what too many sermons have been on this topic in Christian churches over the last 60 or 70 years. Because what I think has happened over the last century is we've taken that simple truth, that simple statement, that biblical truth, And underneath that, I feel like as too many evangelical Christians, we have heaped underneath that umbrella of that simple statement many myths and half-truths and stereotypes and all kinds of hurtful anger and bigotry. And my question here for all of us online and here and what we did in the 4 o'clock as well is, is it possible to hold to the historic understanding, Christian understanding of marriage as one man and woman, but to do it from a place of humility and empathy. And I'm hoping dearly that we can. And if we're going to be humble and empathetic, if we're going to actually approach this historic Christian understanding with humble and empathy, before we get back, because I'm going to get into Genesis 2, and we're going to go look at Genesis 2. And the creation, and man and woman in marriage, and all that sort of stuff. But it, before we do that, if we're going to approach this issue with humility and empathy, we first need to dispel a couple of common Christian myths. And so I want you just to try to sit there, if you can kind of unclench, if you're nervous about this topic at all, if you're at home, maybe put it on pause. 
Tap your chest a couple of times. Take, do some deep breaths. If you're here, just unclench your, your, your hands and just hold things loosely, loosely and listen in on a conversation and we'll look at scripture. And I think Jesus would have us approach this from a Jesus posture. Amen? And so we're going to have to dispel a couple of myths before we go back to Genesis 2. So the first myth, and again, I want you to hold these things loosely. Listen, and let's see God lead us. But a couple of myths we first have to dispel before we look at Genesis 2. The first myth is that gay people choose to be attracted to others of their same gender. Now this is a very important, before we get into Genesis, this is a very important thing for us to, to confront. Because I'm going to tell you what has happened in far too many churches and with far too many Christians over the last 60 or 70 years. Is Christians have approached this, this issue from a place of judgment and anger. This idea that LGBTQ people are all just rebellious against God and they just are, you know, you know and, and again, I'm, I'm just repeating what some of the Terrible stereotypes are that Christians and churches have promoted this idea that everybody who is gay is someone who is just angry at God and choosing to do this in order to be in rebellion against God. And the fact of the matter is, the, the reality and the truth is very different than that. Over 20 years of ministry, never mind, you know, you know all the research and stuff that's out there, but over 20 years of ministry, I've had the privilege of actually being friends with several gay people. But beyond that, to sit down with coffee after coffee after coffee after coffee. We're a, I'm a pastor after all. With people who have same gender attraction. And do you know how many of these people, and one of the, the first thing you do, by the way, if you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to someone, I'll tell you the first thing you do if you want to show someone the love of Jesus, listen to their story. Rather than talking first, Rather than talking about theology and your beliefs and right and wrong, most loving thing you can do, listen to their story. And so I've listened to a lot, a lot of stories over the years. And do you know how many people I've met with same gender attraction who woke up one day and decided, you know, I've always been attracted to the opposite gender, but as of today, I am choosing to be attracted to members of my own gender. Do you know how many people have made that choice that I've met? Zero. Zero. Fact of the matter is, when you listen to people's stories, when you listen to the stories of people who are attracted to members of their same gender, you'll hear the same story over and over and over again of people who, as they're growing up and they hit junior high, start to realize that they are very different than most of the people around them. And do you know how easy it is, by the way, to be different than everyone around you when you're in junior high? I mean, we have some junior high kids here tonight, right? How many of you had a wonderful, easy time with junior high? Just feel free if, to truthfully put your hand up. Maybe some of you did. There's always a couple of really confident, handsome, or beautiful people who just sailed through middle school. I was not one of those people. I remember my middle school years, what in my day we called junior high, right? I remember my junior high years and some of my memories of the things I did and thought and said with horror. I was in a, a several-year period of temporary insanity as I went through puberty, right? As many of us were. 
Now imagine if you throw into the chaos of what you experienced in puberty, if you threw into that, because what happens when you hit junior high or middle school, right, is everybody or most people, not everybody, you know, people are just different, right, but you start to notice people of the opposite gender. So I certainly did. Now at first you cover it up under, oh, they're gross. But it's only really gross in elementary. In junior high, that really gross is actually, wow. Now imagine that you have same gender attraction. And you didn't choose that. And all your friends start to notice, oh, do you know, what a cute girl. Or they don't say it quite like that yet, maybe in grade six, or they're like grossed out and they're actually bugging her or whatever. Or look at that cute boy, or whatever it is. You didn't choose. Did you wake up one morning and think to yourself, today I am going to be attracted to girls. It just happened. It was like a magnet. Oh, look away. It's like looking at the sun. Look away, right? And choose to be attracted to a cute boy. It just happened. Now imagine you're one of these people, and I've heard story after story after story. In fact, we will have people in this room right now who have same-gender attraction, for sure. And imagine, you didn't choose that either, and now all of your friends, you're in this awkward period, and all of your friends are noticing the girls or the boys and you are noticing the opposite. And I'll tell you one of the first feelings, I'll tell you a couple of the feelings that come with that. Okay? One of the first ones is terror. What is wrong with me? And I'll tell you another one that comes with it very quickly, and that is shame. What is wrong with me? And that is not an easy thing to carry about anything. But when it's something like this, and how many kids, particularly in Christian families, right? Because now you hear, wait a minute. God's design is it's a man and a woman. And this other, anything else is a sin. And now as a child, you begin to carry this around yet too. And in many cases, you're too afraid and you're too embarrassed to tell mom and dad. Not because mom and dad are bad, but mom and dad probably would have no idea how to deal with it. And have probably been raised in their own churches to be terrified by this issue and would be terrified if you did tell them. And so you try to push it down. And you pray over and over and over again, night after night after night. Please God, change me. Please God, change me. Please God, change me. Please God, change me. And what happens when months go by and years go by and months go by and years go by and it doesn't change? A lot of these kids, particularly ones who grow up in churches, actually carry around a lot of scars and baggage. These are not evil people. That whole stereotype of rebellious, everybody who's just, you know, they're just sinning and there's an agenda and all this sort of stuff. There are people who have struggled and wrestled with deep, deep pain. And by the way, if your heart doesn't break when you think of kids like this, you need to tap into Jesus and find some more love. If your heart doesn't break when you think of the fact that there are lots of kids that wrestle with this, you need to tap into more of Jesus' love. But the thing is, it doesn't go away when you're a kid, does it? So now you grow up and you're in the church, or maybe you were outside the church, and now you come to church because Christ, Jesus Christ, is just so 
attractive, this idea that God would take on flesh and actually die for us instead of killing us. is just so attractive. So you give your life to him. It's amazing. And now you come to church. And what do we do in churches? I'll tell you what we do. We try to fix people. Usually we don't do a very good job of it either. So we try to fix each other. And if you're mostly fixed up, it kind of works. But you know, as a church, we're actually not that great at fixing people. By the way, if you're horrified by that, that's actually good theology. We have Jesus. That's what we have. But now you go to church, and whether it is explicitly stated often, or whether it is just sort of just in the air, the expectation will be something like follows in the vast majority of churches. And remember, you've already wrestled this with many, for many, many years. It's not like this just happened to you. So now you come to church, and you'll be told, whether subconsciously or consciously, whether verbally or subliminally, if you just pray more. Like you obviously just haven't prayed enough. You need to pray. You need to fast. You need to confess more. We need to do some deliverance ministry. By the way, I'm not making fun of any of these things. Prayer is wonderful. You need to do this sexual healing program that such and such a ministry does. Whatever it is. And if you're still not fixed at the end of that, you need to do it all over again and keep doing it until God takes it away. Now what happens? By the way, I've been in ministry for 20 years. And I have seen lots, not just through churches I've been a part of, but I've seen lots because I know lots of pastors. I'm friends with pastors. And I've seen it happen in other churches too. I have seen many, many same-gendered same gender attracted people come through church and go to church for years and many of them very sincere and do everything that everyone expected of them. I've seen people with same gender attraction pray harder than I've ever prayed, fast more, do everything by the book, memorize dozens and dozens of passages of scripture because maybe if I just memorize enough scripture, I can change the way I think just by doing that. By the way, memorizing scripture is a wonderful thing. I mean, if I just get enough ministry and we do deliverance and we do counseling. Guess how many people in 20 years of ministry, I'm just one person. Guess how many people I have seen come into the church, do everything right for many, many years, and pray and pray and pray and pray and fast and do sexual healing programs. Guess how many people I've seen have their feelings of attraction for the same gender changed? Zero. Zero. You say, you obviously must not be a good pastor. I'm out of here. Maybe you're sitting there and you're going, wait a minute. Are you saying God can't change people? That's not what I'm saying. I've heard missionaries tell stories of people in some faraway country get raised from the dead. By the way, so I happen to believe that God can raise people from the dead. By the way, that's all of our hope, isn't it? Because someday I'm hoping he's going to raise me from the dead. I believe he can do it. Guess how many people, I've been to a lot of funerals, guess how many people I've seen raised from the dead? Zero. Which, by the way, is why, it's not that I don't believe God can, or I, I'm a, I do believe he can, it's not that I believe he can't, but it's also why I don't, when I do a funeral, I don't in front of everybody say, and now in the name of Jesus, rise up and pull the dead body out of the casket. It's, I, it's not because I don't believe that God can do it, it's because it's not the time for that yet. 
And I would rather let the people heal and grieve appropriately. So yeah, there's no doubt I've heard of stories. I've, I've seen videos where people prayed a prayer, they gave their life to Jesus, they prayed a prayer, and they had their tracks changed. That's amazing. But guess what? 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not what God is doing now. So what happens, it's not that I'm saying God can't, what happens when we put pressure on people, just do more, just do more, just do more, just do more, and eventually you'll feel different, and then it doesn't happen. I'll tell you what happens, and I've seen this happen over and over again. I've seen people break. Sometimes it takes them five years, sometimes it takes them 10, sometimes it takes them 20. Some of them finally are just out of the church, and I'm done with God, and I'm done with the church. Others are just done with the church. I've sat with people in a room who wept and said, I can't not believe in God, but everything else just doesn't work. And of course, I've seen others embrace celibacy. I've seen others get married. I've seen all kinds of things. You say, well, what are you saying then? If we can't, if all the prayer in the world isn't changing people's feelings of attraction, well then, what are you saying, Chris? Are you just saying that someone with same gender attraction should just Head out and, and engage in gay sex. And the answer is, no, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you start to answer, if you start to ask that question, you're finally in the place where you can love people because it's not as easy as just don't do it. Which is what we as evangelical Christians have been doing for decades to people, just don't do it, and then throw in some disgust and judgment. It's actually not that easy, and life is messy. It's really, really messy. So that brings up that second myth, and then we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 2. And the second myth is, I was just talking about their gay people can change their attractions. If they pray hard enough, and seek God enough, and do enough deliverance ministry or some sexual healing program, when we focus our attention on people's feelings of attraction, we're setting people up for failure. We need to be asking a different question. What does it mean to be wired this way and give glory to God with your life? What does it mean to be the church and a community where people with same-gender attraction and not same gender attraction can live and relate to each other like a city on a hill and show the world the love of Jesus in an incredibly messy, painful situation. Well, let's ask those questions and let's go to Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden. I'd love to go through the whole chapter verse by verse. That would be super fun. And we would be here for weeks. So Genesis 2 verse 18 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. This text is, you know, a couple thousand years old. Somewhere between two and three thousand years old. It is not good for man to be alone. And how bang on true is that? It's a profound statement about what it means to be human. Studies have shown that prolonged isolation causes all kinds of things. Depression, decreased mental intelligence, okay? Increases suicidal thoughts and self-harm 
And by the way, did they need to do a bunch of studies for us to know that's true? And we've seen people suffering during this pandemic, haven't we? Mentally and emotionally because of the isolation. So we know that's true, right? I got something else interesting to say, and I forget what it is, so I'm going to turn my page. Oh, yeah, this is interesting. At least it is to me. Do you know that the United Nations, I looked at solitary confinement. Do you know that the United Nations a number of years ago uh, put together a thing and they said, solitary confinement, this idea of isolating a human being and getting, taking them away from any kind of human interaction or relationship, they now call it, the United Nations calls that cruel and unusual, uh, it's torture, punishment. And they suggest that no countries allow for any kind of solitary confinement that goes beyond two weeks. But even if you are in, so here in Canada, in Canada, the law is you can't be in solitary confinement for more than two weeks. But guess what? It's even more than that. Every day that you are in solitary confinement here in Canada, you actually have to be let out of your solitary confinement for four hours. And two hours of that has to be meaningful human contact. Now, I know we like to make jokes about how here in Canada, our prison system is more, it's more like resorts, and we like to be old school, and we wish we were back in the gulag and the dungeons. But you know what? Actually, no. We don't treat prisoners that way because we become the animals we treat them as. I love that our country actually is merciful. In that there's that kind of accountability. Also, one other thing I was going to say that was very interesting. Did you know that in the United Kingdom, four years ago, April 2018, the United Kingdom became the first country in the world to actually add a portfolio, permanent portfolio to their government. It's called the Ministry of Loneliness. They actually have a minister in the cabinet, the ruling cabinet, a minister in charge of loneliness because it's such a problem in the UK. And by the way, it's a problem everywhere in the Western world. And here we have, so thousands of years later, we got scientific studies, we got the UN, we got all this sort of stuff. We have finally figured out that loneliness is a problem, and it was in Genesis the whole time. Because it's the way God wired us. It's not good for the man to be alone. You isolate a human being from other human beings, it's going to be a problem. And so what happens next? Well, he goes on. By the way, the next few verses then, we have this random part that evangelicals completely miss the point of, because it's not good for man to be alone. And then, we think it's a totally different subject. God brings the animals to Adam to name the animals. We go, isn't that cute, kids? Adam had to name all the animals. And we think it's onto a new topic. It's the same topic. The whole point of that little insertion into the story is that Adam is looking for a partner. And nothing else is suitable. So at the end of naming the animals, it says this, I will make a helper suitable for him. So the whole point of the animal thing, it's not super important that Adam named all the animals. It's great, but that's not, the, that's not the point of the story. The point is, he's looking for a partner. Nope. So God says, I'm going to make him one. So he does. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. By the way, the, the word there, oh, no, don't, don't do it. I'm going to go over time. There's some awesome stuff in the Hebrew there. Like, so awesome. We could just sit there. And the way we picture this as, you know, God gave him a little shot. He went to sleep. Take out the rib. It, the, the, like, it's not what the author's really getting at. But whatever. It's all good. You'll be fine. You're still going to heaven. 
He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken to the man, and he brought her to the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So we have this beautiful picture. Male and female, they're different, yet the same. And they come together, and it's this beautiful picture, and then it's in marriage, and it's somehow a beautiful picture of God as well. We find that in, in, in Ephesians. We have this beautiful picture of a man and a woman coming together and somehow in our differences and sameness we come together and there's a completion, female made in God's image, male in God's image, and when they come together in marriage, and it's this beautiful picture, okay? Lovely. It's an, it's an absolute spectacular vision of how God has created the world and human beings. There's just one problem that we evangelicals have done with this passage, and that is we've made marriage the, underline T-H-E, solution to loneliness based on this passage. And this passage is not saying, so what this passage is saying, so here's two things, I'll throw up another screen. Here's two things this passage is telling us, okay? Human beings are not meant to be alone, we need relationships. This passage is affirming the beauty of God's design for marriage between a man and a woman. This passage is not telling us that marriage is the only way to be fulfilled relationally. The only way to find fulfillment in life. See, I believe that as evangelicals, what we've done is we've taken Genesis 2 and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Oh, thank God he gave us marriage. And marriage is the only way. And whether we say it outright or not, we create ex expectations in our churches and we put pressure even on our young people. And by the way, I did this for years earlier in my ministry because I'm a bit of a salesperson. Everything I like, I think everyone else should do. I love being married to my wife, Ladon. Therefore, well, I don't want you to be married to Ladon, but I want you to be married to someone else. But I'm married and I like it, therefore you should get married and you should like it. I have four kids, you should have four kids. And I would just, that's just what I did to people when I was younger. And if you're here today, and you had four kids because I encouraged you to, and now you're regretting it, I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're pro-life. You can't kill any of them, okay? <laughs> you you got to stay with what you got. But we create, and I was part of this, but we do this in evangelical churches, is marriage is the, like, you want to be a pastor, you want to be someone who's anyone, like, you want to experience life, you got to be married. you got to have kids. Except, wait a minute. Jesus and Paul didn't get married and didn't have kids. Did Jesus and Paul have less fulfilling lives than married people? Did they have less meaningful lives? Did they have less fulfilling lives? I think in evangelicalism, we've actually confused marriage with the gospel. We've somehow squished marriage. Marriage is wonderful, Genesis 2 tells us, but marriage isn't everything. I remember a brother-in-law of mine once telling me, he said this, and let, just let this sink in for a moment. He said, it's better to wish you were married than to wish you were single. It's a little bit of wisdom, isn't it? Have we made marriage an idol? Have we made marriage the goal? 
Have we created unspoken pressure on young people in the church that they have to find a spouse and get married and have kids because that's the Christian way and that's the way to do it? But what about the fact that actually 20 years of ministry and there's something I've found out. What about the fact that marriage often doesn't cure loneliness? I know there's a specially difficult kind of loneliness for people who are married and they struggle in their marriage and they're still lonely. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage actually isn't the solution. Marriage is a gift. But Christ is the solution. Jesus is the solution. And I got to go on just a little bit of a tangent because I did it in the four and it worked. So I'm going to just do it again. But there's something that I'm, I'm going I'm to throw a phrase out there which I did not coin. It came from someone much smarter than me. Um, a woman author. Yes, guys, women are smarter than us. It's just true, okay? A lot of the time. But she coined this term, it's the sexual prosperity gospel. I think in evangelical churches, we have pre- even when we don't preach the financial prosperity gospel, we have preached the sexual prosperity gospel. And here's what the sexual prosperity gospel is. If you do everything right, when you get married, you're going to have a great sex life. If you just don't have sex before you're married... If you just wait till you're married, kids, if you just do this, so well-meaning preachers, well-meaning youth leaders, if you just wait till you're married, and then you get married, and then if it's not just spectacular from day one, just pray and fast. Maybe see a Christian counselor, but if you just do the right things, God will give you the most fulfilled, sexual, wonderful, happy marriage. Now, sometimes it happens, and that's a wonderful gift, but do you know how many couples are out there who love Jesus with all their hearts and don't have that? Marriage isn't the solution. Jesus is. See, we've actually bought into, we have actually bought into a cultural assumption that you have to be happily married and have a wonderful sex life in order to have a meaningful and fulfilling life. And it's just not true. A wonderful marriage with wonderful, happy sex within that marriage is a gift, but even then, do you know how many people have had lots of sexual relationships in their life, and they're empty and depressed today. In fact, I know couples, I've actually met with couples who actually had a good sex life in their marriage, but the rest of their marriage was trash, and they eventually divorced. That's weird. Right? For some of you, you're like, what? Come on. Like, what more does that? Well... And then what about all these well-meaning marriages and they want better, they, w- they would love to be connected, but they just... What if in this messy, broken world, just like some people get to be healthier and some people get to be better looking and some people get to live longer, what if some marriages get to be a 10 and some marriages get to be a two and a half? Could you live a fulfilling, satisfied life with the help of Christ if you're in a two and a half? I think there's some marriages that if they make it to two, if they can be a two and a half, they're going to get to heaven. God's going to kick them in the pants and say, thank heavens, you made it. I love you. Here's the reward. (laughs) 
Sex is just one small piece out of many for finding joy and fulfillment in life. It's a gift, but you can do without it. And that brings me to this point, which is this. What if the church, what if God has a vision for the church? That the church would be such a place of community and relationship. That single people, both heterosexual or homosexual, of opposite gender attraction or same gender attraction, but what if the church was such a spectacular place of community and relationship where people could find real friendship, where people could be really vulnerable, where people could really be known and accepted for who they are and not just have to push everything down? What if the church could be such a community that people could get that connection and they wouldn't need to go out into the world Seeking sex as the only way for them to find fulfillment. What if we were that kind of a place for all those Christians who are in a lonely marriage and single people and LGBTQ people? I actually think that is what God's vision, what Jesus' vision for the church is. So that brings up three things, practical steps, to creating this overnight does not exist. But I'll tell you where it starts. First practical step. We need to listen to the stories of Christians and non-Christians who have same gender attraction. Before we say another word about what we believe and what right and wrong is, we need to listen to people's stories. That's humility and empathy. Sit down with people and truly listen. And by the way, I have a suggestion for you. Would you guys throw that up and leave it up for a lengthy period of time? I just happen to have a story you could listen to. Aren't you happy? I thought of that in advance. There's a podcast, Theology in the Raw podcast. It's run by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. Yes, his last name is Sprinkle, and yes, I shudder every time I say it. <laughs> it's very wrong. Nobody should have that as a last name. But anyway, he's a wonderful guy who loves Jesus and would be theologically in the same place that we are at Crossview. And he does lots of conversations with different people and happens to, on his podcast, often talk to same-gendered uh, or uh, people who are same-gender attracted. And there's a great story. So you take a picture of this or something. Just get on this story. But anyway, his name is Josh Proctor. He interviews a guy named Josh Proctor who, who grew up, again, just from birth, same gender attracted, grows up in a Christian home, tries everything. One of these kids who prayed and prayed and prayed and did everything to change his attraction. Didn't happen. Eventually he gave up. God obviously hates me. I'm on my way to hell. Do you know how many people I've talked to who spent their entire childhood Something they could not control, their attraction to the same gender, thinking they were going to hell just because of that. It should really make us shudder. So he actually went into gay sex work. They don't go into a lot of details. You can, you can listen to this. Then he still couldn't give up Christ, though, because in the end, the picture of Christ on the cross was too beautiful for him. I have sat in rooms with people with same gender attracted people, with gay people who have sat there with tears and said, I can't not believe in God, but I've done everything you guys in the church told me and I can't change. Because we made them put their focus on the attraction. And then they cry. 
You say, I can't give up on, I can't give up on Jesus, but what happened? So he came back to a church where they said, okay, hey, let's just gay marriage. And then he went through that, and then he wrestled through and came to a place. He said, no, I, I think marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. How he wrestled through that and found community in a church that was so wonderful and freeing and so enriching in how he's living his life out now in that way. It's a great story. Just listen to it. And I got a second suggestion for you. And by the way, this next one embarrasses me. It totally embarrasses me because I am not a social media guy. But I can't think of a better way to do this. So I'm going to tell you something that really embarrasses me. I'm going to tell you to go look me up on Instagram, okay? Oh, Ugh. Okay, because the rest of this week, so I just, I'm going to recommend a bunch of, every day I'm going to recommend another story you can just listen to. Just listen to a story. So I already gave you one. You got homework for tomorrow morning. But if you find me on Instagram, I promise you this week I will not post selfies of myself and put filters on it, okay? Because then I know I've crossed the Rubicon and there is no coming back. The moment I selfie and filter, we're all in trouble. Run for the hills, okay? But you come find me on Instagram. And I'm going to post a new one every, every day. I'll put some books on there too. And why don't we just spend a week listening instead of talking? By the way, aren't some of you just craving that right now in our society anyway? I just feel for our communities. I feel for, you know what? I think of all these protests going on, and I think of the things people have been through, and I just love those protesters, and I love our doctors and nurses, and yes, I even love our politicians. How would you like to be a politician right now and lose no matter what you do? We just got to throw some serious love out there to everyone. So why don't we just spend a week listening to people's stories? So I think you're going to love that. And then here's the last one. In this last one, all you parents where you have high school kids sitting with you right now, you are going to love me after this. And you're going to say, thank you, Chris, for being such a good pastor. And I want to give lots more money to CrossFit because of it. <laughs> keep those in mind, okay? So you're going to keep those in mind for number three. Here's the third thing. Practical step. Young people, okay, don't rush into marriage. And don't touch my daughter, he says. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not afraid of going to prison a second time, right? <laughs> so, um, young people don't rush into marriage. When we deconstruct the idolatry we've made of marriage in the church, and what I did so often in my younger years of ministry, which is pressure people, pressure people, people pressure people and create pressure in youth groups that everybody feels like they just have to get married. It's part of making marriage an idol. Do you want to know what the number one indicator is that a couple is going to get divorced? It's not their faith. It's not, I mean, we could, it's not their socioeconomic status. These are all things that can affect it, absolutely, for sure. But you want to know the number one predictor that a couple is going to get divorced? It's how young they are when they get married. Now, I've got to throw a huge caveat in there. My parents got married at 18. They have one of the best marriages you'll ever see. It's really wonderful. 
I'm not saying if you got married in your teens that you are a bad person. You're not. And you might have a great marriage. But do you know that if you wait to 25 to get married, you're 50% less likely to get divorced. That's just straight stats than if you get married when you're 20. And if you wait a little later into your 20s, it gets even better than that. Now, don't wait too long. You just completely miss the bus. And the graph actually does some weird things. I really shouldn't be doing this, but the graph does some weird things. The ideal age to get married is like 28 to 32. If you wait till after 32, the chances of getting divorced goes back up again, and scientists don't really know why that is. But they have some hypotheses. One is, there's not a lot of good fish left in the barrel. <laughs> Essentially, that's the scientific research label for it. And the other one is that you're just too dead set in your selfish ways that you can't be changed. But whatever the case, I don't know. I won't comment. Strike that from the record. But I'd like you all to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And what if we spent a week, close your eyes, bow your heads with me. What if we spent a week this week just listening to stories of LGBTQ people in some of the hurts and struggles they've had? Instead of talking about right and wrong and talking about theology, what if we just listened for a week and ask Jesus to give us his heart. Lord Jesus, we apologize for making marriage an idol. We apologize for always making pictures of the people who disagree with us or who are different than us, of them being bad or evil or rebellious, that they're all just choosing to be wicked. Father, forgive us. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.